Hello and welcome to the latest in the series of Royal Veterinary College podcasts. My name is Mark Cleesby and today I'm talking with Dr. Stephen van Winden of the Royal Veterinary College and the Welsh Regional Investigation Centre about his interests in tuberculosis in cattle. Hey Stephen, thanks very much for joining us today. Perhaps you can start off just by telling us a bit about what tuberculosis is and what actually causes it. Um, okay, so tuberculosis, there's, there's multiple strains of it, and there's, in this case we're talking about bovine TB or bovine tuberculosis, which is caused by Mycobacterium bovis. Uh, the Mycobacteria familia is, a, uh, is familiar with a acid fast they are, so that suggests that they're very resistant to uh, environmental impact, so they live long in the, in the environment, if you like. Mm-hmm. And this is a, p- a particular strain adapted to cows, hence the name bovis. Okay, so that's that's in bovis. So it obviously affects a number of other species as well, though, doesn't it? Yeah, so it's it's called M bovis, but it also jumps uh, the species barrier um, reasonably easily. There's other hosts as well out there. Goats is a recently reported one. It also uh, infects uh, alpacas or camelids in general. People are also um, target uh, species, and uh, therefore it's also on the on the highlight of DEFRAs because it's uh, is zoonosis as such, so you could get it through consumption of the bacteria and uh, and, and people get affected. And in the olden days, it was quite an important disease and everybody would have a relative uh, who was affected by bovine TB as such. Mm-hmm. It's now a bit uh, less important because we've got meat hygiene inspection in place, so therefore we, we pick out the infected carcasses uh, at the slaughter line and we put pasteurization in place so there's no bacteria that can spread from milk or milk products into the consumer unless you are eating unpasteurized milk or milk products. Okay so how does a cow contract the disease and how does the disease then progress in cattle? Well in general it's considered to be a, a respiratory disease so that's the main focus. Uh, it enters uh, through the mouth and the nose. Um, when it's settled there, it, it normally invades the lymph nodes in the back of the throat, the retropharyngeal lymph nodes, and then progresses further into the lungs, uh, where mediastinal lymph nodes would be infected, but also lung lesions would be detectable. Right, okay, so then you end up with obviously a respiratory disease primarily. Yeah, and if you wait long enough, you get a a chronic wasting of the animal, but in most cases, and especially in the uh, UK where there's surveillance in place, you won't get to this chronic phase of the disease. So there's also other uh, more sporadic types, uh, which you could find there's also a skin lesion, which comes as nodules, uh, but it's predominantly respiratory disease. Okay, so the respiratory disease would be characterised by cough in cattle, would it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so whereabouts is it a problem then in the UK? In the UK, um, it has been in the last 20 years, predominantly in the southwest of England and uh, South Wales. That those are the historically the the, the hotspots, and and these are still hotspots, but it's also spreading uh, in Wales, it's spreading to North Wales, especially north northeast border, uh, there's quite some TB there. Also after, after the food and mouth disease outbreak, the repopulation of the farms that were culled, it also spread up to the north, probably by livestock transport. So cows were infected, not detected by test, but infected, uh, repopulated the north, uh, northwest of England, and then TB started to settle there as well. Mm-hmm. Scotland is uh, recently declared officially free, so that suggests that 
diseases not currently present. So therefore, they've got, they're in a different testing scheme as well. Okay, so how is the disease normally uh, detected then in cattle? I mean, it's, it doesn't normally get to the stage of a clinical uh, case, does it? No, typically not. So there's a surveillance system in place, and that's an obligatory one. Throughout the EU, there's different systems. So in mainland Europe, and on the farms or in the countries that are free of TB, they've got a slaughter line surveillance. So they cut the lymph nodes in the back of the throat to detect the disease. Um, the moment when they spot disease, there will be massive standstill and every animal will be tested in the affected area to pick out any other infected animals. Uh, like we had an outbreak of TB a year ago now in Holland uh, as a result of imported calves from the UK. So that, that's how it was uh, detected, slaughterline surveillance. And that's probably what will happen in Scotland as well yeah. once they've got settled disease-free status. In the rest of the UK and Ireland, uh, there'll be regular skin testing. And uh, that skin testing happens by injecting in, into the skin, not under the skin, but into the skin, an antigen. And that antigen will stimulate the immune system to react. And that reaction is being measured by the thickness of the response. So the thicker the response, uh, the, the thicker the nodule, the bigger the response. And therefore, the more likely this animal is truly infected with bovine TB. In the recent years, or probably over 10 years by now, there's also an avian component to it because, as I said, mycobacterium has got different family members and mycobacterium avium is one of them, mm -hmm. and uh, which is a, a TB in birds. But that will result also into reactions to the bovine. There's a cross-reaction there on right. a skin test. So what then happens is that they do a bovine test and an avian test at the same time and they compare the different reactions to the lumps and if there's a large enough lump for the bovine response and there's no avian response uh, then it's declared as a positive case. Okay so if there's a response to the avian antigen does that imply just a more generalized response then? Um, if there's an avian response that suggests that these animals infected with avian TB right. and the reading is then that your bovine TB response could well be due to avian TB because right. there's a cross reaction so therefore they will subtract the, the, the reading for avian TB from the bovine TB to know whether the differential is due to bovine TB infection. It's a major issue because disease prevalence changes quite a bit uh, also especially the avian TB one so if you're in a cow infected with avian TB, you could mask bovine TB because you are being compensated for the fact that you've got a reaction on the avian side. On the side, and that's not really clear so far to what degree it, it uh, has, has an impact on the test performance of bovine TB, but there's also a disease which is called Yoni's disease or paratuberculosis, which is a, a subfamily of the avian TB. It's uh, mycobacterium avian subspecies paratuberculosis. Okay. Uh, which is an, a wasting disease in cows causing gut lesions. Mm -hmm. But if you're infected with Yoni's disease, paratuberculosis, it could well be that will result into a positive response on the skin test, therefore masking your bovine TB. So uh, in a way, in a herd, when there's Yoni's disease out there, you could wonder whether the test performance is as good as a Yoni's disease negative herd. 
Okay, so it's a confusing factor, basically. It is a, a massive confusing factor, and on farms which we visit in Wales, there's a, another bird in place which is called the starling, and especially a, a visitor during winter, and starlings could also, of course, carry the avian TB in them. Uh, they tend to feed on the cereals in the in the ration of the cows, right. so they're predominantly in the, uh, in the, in the feed trough. Okay, so very uh, close contact. Then. Very close contact, yeah. because what happens is that if they're in the feed trough eating the cereals, they also leave something behind yes. the dropping, and therefore they could infect the cows, and therefore you could have a, uh, a compromised reading of the TB test as well. Okay, so reactors then to bovine TB are slaughtered, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, and what happens to the rest of the herd in that situation? Uh, if you've got a reactor uh, that means that a big enough reaction to the bovine tb then this animal will be sent to slaughter there's different systems in place in wales there will be a valuer first to make sure what the value of that individual cow is mm -hmm. in england there will be a tabulated valuation so what happens is that they just pull out a table say well this cow is that uh, that many years old that uh, high lactation in calf yes or no and you'll get a set price right. the having the valuer there is uh, having an impact on the speed of clearing these of uh, animals from from the herds, reactor removal time, and that will be quite relevant in the in the control of the disease. So, reactors will be removed, will be killed at slaughterhouse, and in the slaughterhouse, they will uh, make incisions in the lymph nodes to see whether there's TB in that animal or not. Okay, and those would be confirmed cases, as the as the jargon is. Mm -hmm. About fifty percent. Of all skin reactor animals will be confirmed reactors. The, the other 50%, even though there's no visible lesion, that doesn't say that there's no bovine TB. It says that most likely the test is done rather early in the disease, picking up a preclinical and predetectable stage. Yeah, before there's a gross lesion. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where lots of confusion comes from because there's many farmers that will have the results back from the slaughterhouse and then they, if there's no lesions, they'll say they didn't have TB. Well, that's not really the case. The, the, the case is that it didn't show in the carcass, but there's only a few cuts you can do on the carcass, so therefore the sensitivity is not too good. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the rest of the herd then uh, are subject to... Movement restrictions. Right. Yeah, so the, the, the herd will be closed down. The farmer is not allowed to sell of any stock other than for slaughter. The mm. farmer is not allowed to bring in any stock either. So uh, it has to be contained within his unit, which makes the, the whole experience for the farmer quite painful because it's difficult to run your farm without the movements in place. Yeah. And that might be also innately the problem of uh, the core of the problem is that there's so much cattle movements about in the uk that it could well be that having restrictions uh, uh, i think is a good thing but it also is the achilles heel in the uk cattle industry i think okay so we've mentioned briefly that the disease obviously is a zoonosis can be passed to humans is this something that actually in practice happens much in the uk i guess it's perhaps more of a problem in in other countries but it does happen i think but i think there's less than 10 cases reported uh, per year but i don't have the figures uh, mm. on the top of my head there was a recent risk assessment done by from ireland and they estimated to have between one and four cases per year contracted by consumption of dairy products. 
I think currently the maybe the major f- factor is not so much the cows and the cows products, but more companion animals. Mm. Like on the college farm we are based in Wales, one of the cats came down with TB. Okay. She contracted TB from the cattle unit, probably by drinking milk. That's the assumption. And got TB, and as a as a result of it, because it's a pet, it will be in the in the owner's house as well. And uh, due to the close contact, there might be a higher risk of crossover to the human. Yes, respiratory transfer. Yeah, exactly, uh, and and the same goes for pet goats, alpacas, uh, other species which are not in the routine testing. So therefore, we don't know what's what's happening but have a uh, close contact with the owner. So I think those would be a more risky type of factor than the consumption of dairy products or, or meats, for that matter. Right. So presumably the numbers are, are dwarfed by the uh, the numbers of human-to-human transmissions that will go on. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So why then has the disease come back? Because, I mean, it, it was pretty rare maybe 20 or 30 years ago, wasn't it? It had decreased a great deal. Is this purely down to, to increase cattle movements? or? It's a good question, and um, history is an interesting one that you will always struggle to interpret correctly. You know, that uh, Different people have different views. If you are a badger hater, you probably will say it's the wildlife component, and we, uh, since the 80s we don't shoot badgers anymore, so therefore... Uh, more TB, hence that's due to uh, the badger. I think life is a bit more complicated than that. There's multiple factors out there. For one, herds tend to be larger than they used to be in the in the 60s when TB was under control. So it's easier to control TB in a unit of 20 cows than in a unit of 200 cows. Right. So I'd rather have 10 herds with 20 cows to get TB eradicated than uh, a one herd with 200 cows. Mm-hmm. And I'd rather 10 herds with 200 cows than one herd with 2,000 cows because the chance of one animal sticking in a population which is not detected by the skin test and therefore re-infecting uh, the cows that are uh, not affected yet is far, far higher if you've got bigger numbers. So it's I, I think in the last 30 years, herd size has increased. Right. And so, so that that's one side. The other side is herd sides tend to have increased because not so much by putting more cows on the same plot of land, but by acquiring other farms. And those other farms are then linked uh, most of the times through livestock movements to the main unit. So there are farms that we work with that have about 10 different sites where they've got livestock. So that means that even though there are, say, 2,000 unit, 2,000 cow units, uh, this unit is not just one key geographical area that is four or five different ones. On one is uh, they may be only used for cutting grass for silage, but the other there's uh, young stock. There's another one for dry cows. There's another one for for in calf heifers. So there's there's lots of movements around, yeah. and every unit will have a different set of neighbors with a different set of wildlife factors as well mm-hmm. uh, proximate to them, and. Speaking uh, from a dairy perspective, the focus will be more on the dairy cows than on the other populations because that's not what's making money directly. Right. So young stock is not really observed very well. Maybe fence barriers uh, are not as strict as they should be. Uh, you, you've got more livestock interaction there. And we see quite a few units where 
the TB predominantly happens in the younger animal, suggesting that it's being picked up by the heifer as a calf and then incubates in the animal and then it flags up, uh, it's being flagged up as a, uh, through the skin test. That's quite suggestive that maybe by having more focus on the young stock, you might be able to control disease. Moving on to discuss control in more detail, obviously uh, the size of the herd, movement restrictions, um, containment is obviously very important. What other strategies can we talk about? I guess vaccination and then reservoir species you've brought up as well, which obviously an important thing. So why is it that we're not actually uh, using a vaccination scheme then to try and control the spread of this disease? I think that's a good question and quite a relevant question. The thing is that if you would use a vaccine for TB in cows, you won't be able to discriminate anymore in the skin test. So if you would vaccinate the cow, she might be protected, but if we do the skin test on her, she will be flagged up as, as, as positive. That's a big downside, so we need to have a, a market type of vaccine where we could identify the animals that have been vaccinated mm-hmm. and the ones that have the natural infection. And there's quite some work in progress on it, and that's also one of the pillars that on, uh, of DEFRA's policy to get that in further developed. That would be a useful tool if it's out there, if it's if it's developed and, and, and ready to go, because that will prevent new cows becoming infected. So therefore, uh, we would still be able to pick up the infected, naturally infected animals, but the vaccination would prevent new cows becoming infected. In badgers, they don't do TB testing routinely. So what they're currently trialing is a, a vaccination strategy amongst badgers to see whether the new infections amongst badgers will drop and therefore the spillover to cows or back into the cow population would be reduced and therefore uh, minimizing the wildlife factor. I think there's some concerns to be had on such such a strategy because it will be quite a chance to get full population penetration. You probably won't be able to vaccinate around 60% of your badgers and the question is whether that would be enough. Another issue is also if you've got a naturally infected badger, so already having TB, what kind of impact would that have if you vaccinated? Probably you won't clear disease as such because it's not a treatment. Yeah. So uh, still these animals would, uh, would be a reservoir. I, I think it's a good way forward, but I, I think the biggest gain would be had in a vaccine for cattle. Okay, I mean, it's obviously quite a different situation from, for example, foot and mouth, which comes in epidemics usually, and and there's a reluctance to vaccinate. They'd they'd rather sort of remove the infection. Here, I guess, this disease is is basically endemic, isn't it? In some areas it is. Yeah. And uh, in a way, I think the analogy is is good with foot and mouth disease, because if you choose to vaccinate as a nation, you still would not be able to differentiate between your vaccine and your natural infection so you're you're still with a similar problem where it's difficult to say that a nation is free of a disease Mm. when there's still vaccination titers kicking about so um, the analogy I think is a good one the problem is that TB is such a slow moving disease and there's such a slow progress of of disease and disease is being picked up very late as well by the test that we currently have Mm -hmm. that is 
I think, more undermining the whole control strategy. There's also another test in place. So there's the vaccination is, is one side of the coin. Uh, the other side is there's currently a blood test, which is a test. It's, it's similar to the skin test, but we do it in a Petri dish. It's a gamma interferon test. So we stimulate the, uh, the lymphocytes in, uh, to see what how, how much gamma interferon they produce in a Petri dish. And depending on on the levels of uh, response, cows are being flagged up as, as positive or negative. The downside is it's not as specific, but it's, quite, it's far more sensitive. And I, I think that's that's another problem of the current testing scheme is that the sensitivity of the test is not real great. Yeah. As in, you probably leave one out of four, one out of three animals that are infected, but you don't pick them up as yet. So these animals are infected and potentially infectious to other cows, but not being flagged up by the skin test. Okay, so but conversely, false positives the problem with the, the blood test. Then. Well, to a degree, I, I think if you want to eradicate a disease, I think you as a policymaker or you as a farmer should tolerate the fact that you might kill animals that are tested positive, mm-hmm. but false positive. So they don't carry disease, but they are tested positive. I think that's a price one has to pay to get rid of a disease. Yeah. I think the biggest, bigger problem is to try to eradicate it as well as you can, but still leaving infection in the herd so that's not being picked up by the test due to the poor sensitivity of the test. I think when you're eradicating a herd, I think it's more important to have a more sensitive test and let go of the specificity as such. Okay, and is the blood test the answer to uh, differentiating vaccinated from infected animals? Well, it would be similar. So uh, still you need a marker vaccine to really know that these animals are positive due to natural infection. Okay, so if we move on to discuss uh, reservoir species then, I guess the the, the badger is the, the main one in the UK. You've mentioned the sort of trials of a vaccination program, but obviously there are many proponents out there for for badger culling in in control, Mm. as was uh, certainly something that was undertaken some years ago. So can you sort of give us a, if you like, a sort of rational appraisal of of the the results of the culling trials to date? Well, uh, I think this is a... um an area which is open for interpretation, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's because science in field trials is always difficult to interpret, I think, because there's so many other factors that are in, in the equation that we don't really control for. So the randomized badger uh, curl so far revealed that if you curl badges within an area, then disease, TB disease, tends to drop amongst the cows. Mm-hmm. But if you then have a look at the brim of the area, so the, the outside of your killing area, there's an increase of TB taking place. Right. And the suggestion is that because of the fact that you take out badgers out of the population, they start to roam more and roam further, mm-hmm. and therefore spreading disease more, if you like. There's also pub- published data out there suggesting, so that's after the evaluation of the randomized badger kill, that there's an, an ongoing effect of the reduced TB breakdowns in cattle herds, suggesting that badgers do contribute quite a bit and there's a prolonged effect of culling the badger. You could wonder whether uh, that is a, a true badger effect or whether it's a an animal husbandry effect where farmers, apart from culling uh, the badgers, also were closer monitored about their livestock movements 
mm-hmm. and about their hygiene practices and therefore uh, adapted best practice, i.e. less movements and more hygienic working. And as a result of that, uh, disease prevalence dropped. Changing a habit in a farmer is quite yeah. a challenge, yeah. but once you've changed the habit, it could well be that it sticks in the farmer's habit as well. So it's difficult to tease out whether it's a an, an effect of the badger as such or there's an, uh, a parallel effect taking place. One doesn't know. And I think if you if you have a close look at how many badgers you can curl and how effective it's going to, a badger curl is going to be, I uh, would be quite cautious to say, well, let's kill all badgers in the TB-infected areas and TB will be gone. I think the other dynamics of the test performance and the population dynamics of the larger units, the population dynamics of units with multiple sites, I think will have a far bigger impact. Right. And and therefore, if you'd have a holistic viewpoint, you'd say, well, let's have a look at all the species out there that are susceptible but then I would say not focus only on the badger, but also have a look at deer. They are good carrier species. Have mm-hmm. a look at goats. These are good carrier species. Have a look at alpacas or llamas or other other carriers that could have the disease and therefore could also spread disease to cows back again. Right. So obviously there's a lot of factors at play here rather than just the badger population. It's, uh... I, I think it's easy to say it's all on the badger. Mm. Uh, I think parallel with the fact that we don't kill badgers anymore, farming has changed big time. And that change will have an impact on disease behavior. And I, I would be sad to see if everybody would say, oh, let's uh, hit on a badger hard and then maybe reducing TB in the process, but maybe not as a causal response of that or a result of that. I'm, I'm quite pragmatic in that way, is that knowing that populations won't be fully targeted, so you won't be able to kill every badger, I'd rather focus on the areas where you do have control over as a farmer. Mm-hmm. So um, if I would be down with TB, i try to keep the badges out, but that will be never fully proof. Yep. I'll do my best. But I also clean my act on other aspects that would spread disease in my herd. So that could be as simple as putting an extra water trough amongst my cows because I've got only one water trough for 120 cows to drink from. Or Knowing that bovine TB is a respiratory disease, it could quite easily hide in a water trough. So having best practice on your farm will have probably also an equal or maybe even bigger effect than focusing on uh, on badgers. Speaking to lots of farmers, they rather blame something which is out of their friend's zone, uh, like the badger or deer or whatever they, they would like to do, rather than blaming their neighbor. Mm. Because TB is just another social uh, transmittable disease among cows. I think farmers don't really like to pinpoint the neighbor as the cause of the infection. And they rather... Well, it's it's difficult to say, and this is generalizing, but they'd rather blame something else whether it's the lorry driver or some or DEFRA in general or the test performance yeah. rather than the neighbors. And and that's, I think, an, a dynamic which should be acknowledged as well. Most farmers would say that they appreciate the wildlife factor, but uh, they don't think that's the major part of the whole disease problem. And I think that's an honest answer to say that it's 
probably also other factors like the livestock component to it. Okay, so what are the ongoing efforts or ongoing research projects that are actually taking place at the moment which will help us uh, establish the uh, best way of controlling the disease? There's one in Wales, uh, which which we're not being involved uh, actively as a co- as the college, but there's a nor- in North Pembrokeshire they're going to have an uh, intensive intensive area where they're going to put both animal husbandry practices in place as well as a wildlife control uh, uh, in place, and and of course that will be a challenge to see where they you can uh, curb the trend from uh, an increase in TB to a, a drop in TB. I think a, a, a part of the problem will be is that it's difficult to to tease out whether it's the the badger because that that's how it will be perceived by some people, mm-hmm. or whether it's the is the cattle movement restrictions or the animal husbandry practices that that would have an impact on the whole disease dynamic. So uh, that's one. Uh, as I said, there's a badger vaccination trial taking place. Uh, they're developing a vaccine for bovine TB, which optimists think it should be available within within three years not really sure whether that exactly but to me tb is just another infectious disease which just happens to settle well in cows like any other infectious disease amongst cows it's controllable by making sure that you get rid of your infected and infectious animals as good as possible okay so sticking basically with rigid uh surveillance that's my take on it and there will be always complicating factors in it but i think by having good animal husbandry uh, practice good biosecurity to prevent spread within your herd but also prevent spread to your neighboring farm so if you are down with tb as a as a farmer and you know that you've got a, a certain population which is infected uh, make sure that that population doesn't get in contact with your neighboring cattle as well, because I think there's a responsibility that not just lies within DEFRA or the government. I think there is a responsibility of the people that are down with TB, uh, as well as the ones that are susceptible to it. Okay. Well, I think on that note, Stephen van Winden, thank you very much. You're welcome. And thanks very much to our listeners out there as well. Of course, in the There'll be another episode of the RVC podcast next month, but in the meantime, if you've got any comments or suggestions with regard to the podcast, you can contact us at podcast.rvc.ac.uk. Thanks again.